My name is David, as Aaron just said. I am one of the deacons here at Aletheia Church, and I have the privilege of preaching this morning. But before we do, if you have elementary age children and would like to send them to Aletheia Junior, we have volunteers in the back, um, so feel free to do that now. And also, if you have yet to receive a scripture journal, we have those available. They have the book of John on one side and then a space for you to take notes. So if you're interested in one of those, we have volunteers in the back that are willing to give you one. We just ask that you bring it back every week so you can take notes. So as we just read, we are finally getting to the end of John chapter 6. There was a lot to cover. This will be a third, the, the third sermon in a three-sermon series through John chapter 6. So if you have not listened to the previous two sermons, I encourage you to go and do that later because I kind of build off of a lot of what Kevin has already spoken about. But before we get into the text, I wanted to share a little story of something that happened to me very recently. So about two weeks ago, I woke up at 2.30 in the morning, which is not usual for me, and I had some discomfort in my right lower back, kind of in the kidneys area. And I was like, maybe I just need to get up, go to the bathroom, and go back to sleep. I tried that, tried to lay down. The discomfort was just getting worse and worse. I was like, oh, maybe I need to drink some water. I got up, drank some water, walked around the house. The pain was just getting worse and worse and worse. And I know some of you already know where this story is going because you probably lived it. And the pain was so bad that I couldn't stay still for more than 15, 30 seconds. I, I, I would lay down, I would get up, I would crouch down, I would stand up, and it was just unbearable. And I got to a point where it was clear to me that I needed emergency medical attention. I was like, I need to see someone to help me right now. I have no other option. I can't lay down. Anything I try here at home, nothing can fix the problem I have. I need medical attention. So I woke my very pregnant wife up and said, you have got to drive me to the emergency room. And so we eventually went to the emergency room. They figured out all I had was a small kidney stone that I was going to be able to pass with the help of some medication. That passed by noon that day, and I felt great. I know what you must be asking yourselves, David. Why does this have anything to do with John chapter 6? We don't care about your medical history. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see Peter reach a similar conclusion as the one that I reached at 3 in the morning, but in regards to Jesus. See, the disciples are going to respond today to the words that Kevin, Kevin fleshed out the previous two weeks, and many of them are going to turn away. And it is in this mass exodus of followers where, where Peter comes to this conclusion that there's no one else he can turn to. There is no other option for him except Jesus, because only he has words of eternal life. So that's what we're going to, to talk about today. But before we get into it, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I Thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, for his sacrifice on the cross, for his life. I pray that we all can say like Peter today, that there is no one else we can turn to, that there is no one else who can satisfy our need and give us eternal life except you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. As I stated, Kevin has already preached two sermons on John chapter 6. Two weeks ago, he spoke about Jesus and his miracles and how he was better than Moses when he spoke about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on water. And last week, he spoke about Jesus' sermon explaining that he was God, claiming that he was the bread of life. And today, 
my sermon will be titled, To Whom Shall We Go? As we kind of explore the response of the disciples to the words of Jesus. And it just has three major points. The first is that the words of Jesus are hard. The second is that the words of Jesus are polarizing. And the third is that the words of Jesus are life. So let's begin with the first point. The words of Jesus are hard. And this is blatant and clear as soon as we read verse 60, right? It says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And so I want to make a couple of clarifications right off the bat. First, when we see the text referring to disciples there, it is not just referring to the 12. This is a larger group of followers that also includes the 12 disciples that we're used to. So that's the first clarification. The second is when they are saying that the words of Jesus are hard, what does that mean? Well, that word in Greek has a lot of connotations. It's not just that the words of Jesus were hard to understand, which sure, we're going to address it. That is part of the problem here because they're trying to only understand his words according to the flesh. But this, this word represents that the, the disciples think his words are not just hard to understand, but harsh and offensive. In, in other words, these disciples find the words of Jesus intolerable. And so before we kind of explore the response further, I figured we should at least lay out a few reasons why they're thinking the words of Jesus are so hard or harsh or even intolerable. And I've boiled it down to three major reasons. I'm sure there are more that could be uh, fleshed out of the text, but I think these were the the clearest ones that I saw um, in the text and according to, to what Kevin already shared last week. The first reason that the words of Jesus are hard to these disciples is because they are not merely physical realities, but are spiritual in nature and they must be understood according to the Spirit. And if you're saying, what is an example of that? Well, exhibit A, John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54. So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So at face value, you're like, he just told them that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they don't have eternal life. And, and, and you might say, well, I could see why that is upsetting to these disciples, right? Because they're only trying to understand the words of Jesus according to the flesh without the spirit. And so Jesus in verse 63 highlights this to them. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They are spirit in that they are the product of the life-giving spirit, and they are life, that they are, that they are, if they're rightly understood according to the spirit, they are absorbed and they generate life within us. In John 5, 24, he puts it this way, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And, and in, another, in another passage in, in Romans 10, we're, we're told that eventually the only thing, and Kevin spoke about this last week, the only thing that is required of us is to place our faith and trust in Jesus, right? And Romans 10, 17 tells us that that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, 
So his words are spirit and life. They must be understood according to the spirit. In in the beginning of that verse, he says, the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. If we're trying to understand the words of Jesus only according to the flesh, we're going to think they're harsh. We're going to think they don't make any sense. So that's the first reason. The second reason that the words of Jesus are hard is because Jesus makes it clear that we need divine intervention. And in verse 65, he says that no one can come to him unless it is granted by the Father, right? And we just read that it is the Spirit who gives life, that our flesh is no help at all, just pushing us to this idea that we need God. And and this was the same in in the, the beginning of the chapter or earlier in the chapter in verses 37 and 44, where he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's verse 37. And in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so Kevin fleshed that out more last week. He spoke about predestination and election and and effectual calling, all these really difficult topics that um, he did a great job of of discussing last week. So I, I would encourage you to Go back, listen to that, dig deeper there. But in essence, these words are hard because Jesus is telling the disciples, and he's telling us that you cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot achieve eternal life on your own. You need the triune God to save you, right? The Father draws us. The Spirit gives us life through the Son who is the bread of life. And that's, that's, those are hard words. I don't think this is just unpopular to the disciples in Jesus' day. I, I think this rubs people the wrong way today. We live in a society that is so focused on earning everything yourself, right? Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and you can do it if you just work hard enough. And the words of Jesus tell us you can't. You cannot save yourself. And so his words are hard. That's the second reason. The third reason is that the words of Jesus highlight our affinity to focus on temporal things instead of the eternal. Our our natural instinct to have our focus and our attention to be on things that aren't of eternal value. And I love in, in verses 26 and 27, he just calls these followers out. Point blank, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he tells them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So a lot of these disciples were just following him because Jesus was providing bread to them. And just, I know that might be silly to us. We might say, Man, why is that such a big deal? Well, it was a big enough deal that Jesus provides this miracle and gives them bread and they're ready to make him king right away. They're like, this this is the guy. This is him. We need to make him our king right now. And Jesus calls them out and he's saying, you're just following me for something as simple as bread. You're gonna eat it now. And it doesn't matter how much you eat, by tomorrow, you're gonna be hungry again. He's like, I'm trying to offer you something so much better than that. And again, I think it's, we would be wrong to read this passage and judge these followers of Jesus that turn away 
as if it doesn't happen today, as if we aren't focused on temporal things, as, as, if, as if our whole lives, we don't spend our time just focusing on maybe our career or finding a spouse or getting a raise or a, the next car or the next house. And I want to make it clear that the problem here is not that these followers want bread. Jesus doesn't want them to stop eating and die. He doesn't want you to stop you know, wanting to further your career or if you have a desire for a spouse. Like the, the, the goal is not for you to not have any of those desires. The goal is to have your desires ordered appropriately. And if temporal things are at the very top of your list, or worse, if temporal things are the reason that you are following Jesus, then guess what? When those things go, which they inevitably will go, then so will you, like these followers. And I know, and I know this connection is, is such an easy one to make. I think I love that Jesus uses the example of bread, right? Because everybody understands the necessity of bread. I know a lot of you are probably already thinking where you're gonna go eat. Some of you probably already know what entree you're going to order and what dessert you're going to have. Uh, so, so our minds just naturally gravitate towards food because we all need it to survive. And so it is with that in mind that Jesus tells them that I am the bread of life. In the same way that you're striving and working for this physical bread, you should desire and strive to follow me because I can give you true satisfaction that this bread cannot. And this is just such a hard reality to face ourselves with because how often is that our true desire in our hearts? How often do we desire after Jesus as much as we desire after food? In in another passage in scripture, in Psalm 42, the, the psalmist says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. I was really thirsty right before I, stepped up here on the stage. I realized I hadn't drank any water. So I grabbed my wife's cup and she puts lemon in her water. I don't understand why she does that. It spoils perfectly good water. So she knows I don't like that, but she's like trying to warn me. And I'm like, I'm really thirsty. I need to drink something anyways. See, this is the way that we're supposed to uh, yearn and desire communion and, and intimacy with Jesus. That, that, that it doesn't even matter if, if it's the exact cup and, and, and with lemon or not. Like, I just need something to quench this thirst. And only Jesus can provide that. And, and while these words are, are hard, this isn't the first time we've seen Jesus point uh, his followers to this reality that we're just so focused on earthly and temporal things, right? He has the same or a very similar discussion with the woman at the well, right? Where he's telling her, I can give you living water. And she's like, oh yeah, I want that water because I don't want to have to come to the well. That sounds like a great idea. Maybe we can install it in my house. And he's like, no, this woman just wants more water. These disciples just want more bread. But Jesus is trying to get them and us to understand that our main need is a spiritual one not just a physical one. He wants us to see that we are not just people who need water and bread, but we are dead corpses who are worried about where our next meal is going to come from. Our first focus needs to be to become alive. Then we can worry about earthly things. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 depicts our status before 
we are made alive in Christ. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That is our status before we meet Jesus. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And so why, that's why he's focusing on it. He's like, this is, this is your dire need. Bread, we can figure that out in a little bit. In fact, he just proved that he can feed 5,000 with not much, right? He's like, this is the one thing that I need you to focus on. And so this rubs them the wrong way. It, it rubs us the wrong way when, when, we're, when, we're, when we're faced with our, our need or our focus to, to just be on temporal things and things that don't last. And so these disciples start to grumble, right? And many of you might be grumbling. You'll be like, oh, I'm, I want to focus on my career. I only want to focus on my significant other. This is all that I want right now. And I love the way that Jesus interacts with the grumbling disciples. He, he asks them a simple question. He says, if you saw another sign, if you saw me ascend back into heaven, would, would that make these words any less difficult? In other words, if, if you saw another miracle, and remember, they just saw him feed 5,000 and walk on water, which seems pretty miraculous to me. But he says, if you just saw another sign, would it make these words less hard? And now I know Jesus' Jesus' ascension will eventually draw many to him, but the reality he's trying to get across here is that he knows that we don't need another sign, but instead need spiritual life and that he can only offer that within himself. And at the same time, he's probably thinking, man, if you guys think what I just told you in John chapter six are hard words, wait until you hear about my plan for redemption that I will die, remain dead for three days, come back, and then leave and ascend into heaven. In 1 Corinthians, we're told that, that this is actually seen as folly to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to Jews. And so he's like, if you think my words are hard right now, just wait. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be, many of you are going to be killed for following a savior who died on a cross. So if you think my words are hard now, just get ready because they're only getting more difficult. And so our call this morning is not to like the words that Jesus is saying, but instead to wrestle with them and believe them. That's the, that's the purpose of, of the book of John, that we might believe that Jesus is the son of God. And so that's what these words are pointing us to. These words are hard. They're not just hard for the disciples, they're hard for us, but they are truth and they are what we need to hear because these very same words that hurt our ego, they also point us to the only one who can save and satisfy us, Jesus himself. And they confront us with a call to action, right? The words of Jesus only give us two options. We either believe them or we reject them, which is why my second point is that the words of Jesus are polarizing. And now what's very interesting here is the, those who reject the words of Jesus can look very differently. So we have the masses, right? In verse, in verse 66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So that's like the easiest rejection that we all can see and recognize, right? Someone who says, I hear you, Jesus, I see that you're calling all, all of this out. 
I don't care for that. I want to focus on just myself and my life. Walks away. But one of the 12, Judas, rejects his words, yet fakes his way for the rest of his life until he ends up betraying Jesus. But ultimately, both are still in the same camp. Both are rejecting the words of Jesus. And what is very clear here is that that, that, that is not an option, that you cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus and reject his words. It's not an option left out for us. You either leave him or you fake it and end up betraying him. But regardless, if you, if you reject the words of Jesus, you cannot claim to be a follower of him. Look at what he says in, in Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You can't say you're a follower of Jesus and reject his words in the same way that I can't say I love my wife and also in the same breath say, honey, I love you, but please never talk to me. I don't want to hear you say anything. Just please be quiet. How do you think that would go for me? It would not go well, right? It, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And so the same thing is true with Jesus and his followers. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, this text gives us the, the practical uh, example of what that looks like. You just follow his words. You follow his example. You follow his life. It's that simple. It's, it, I know sometimes we can make it very complicated, but, but it really is not. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's why here at Aletheia Church, we value God's word. We think it's important because if we want to be good followers of Jesus, what, what better way to know about him, what better way to follow him than to study his words, to study what he has told us, what he has revealed to us about himself. But instead, many turn away, right? That's, that's a big, big point here in, in this passage. We're, when confronted with, with the fact that humanity is, is fallen and that spiritual life is only found through the Spirit, Many will turn away and say, no, I think I can save myself. I think I can be good enough. When, when they hear the words of Jesus calling them to shift their focus from temporal things like bread and water and to shift it to, to him who can give eternal life, they'll say, no, I, I actually really, really like my physical stuff. I want more stuff. That's all I want my life to be about. At, at the prospect of God's sovereignty over those who come to him, Many will say, how dare you say that I need God when I know I can save myself? And so they'll turn away because when the emotional high of the approving crowds is gone and the harsh reality of, humans sinful, or, or, of humanity's sinful nature is exposed, it becomes clear who sees Jesus for who he truly is and who saw him as just a miracle genie, a means to an end, or an opportunity to gain influence. And they're deterred by his hard words to just turn away and leave. And in contrast, those who see him for who he truly is, the God and savior of the universe, can't even fathom going anywhere else. 
They can't even think about leaving him or searching for life anywhere else because they're convinced there is none outside of him. And this isn't, I, I want to make that so clear because it can be so easy to just look at these disciples that turn away and be like, that only happened then. This happens every single day. There are people who claim to be Christians. You can call them cultural Christians. I like to call them convenient Christians who just follow Jesus when it's convenient to them. When people are going to applaud me, when people are going to tell me this is great. Yeah, I'll go to church every Sunday because it's a great social, social event. I can meet people. I can have friends. Uh, it's, it's a great place to be. I'll, I'll click Christian on my Facebook profile. I'll, I'll have a, a Bible verse in my bio. Heck, I'll, 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 even, I'll even write it out in, in my bio so people can read it. This is great. But they only want to follow Jesus when it's convenient to them. But Jesus makes it very clear that he wants so much more than that. He doesn't want to just be a bumper sticker for you. He wants you to have true intimacy with him. He wants you to find spiritual and eternal life, and he can only offer that within himself. I mean, he just said he wants you to eat of him. I mean, what, what, I, I can't think of, of language that can be more intimate in nature than you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. That's not just some, someone that wants you to think of them once a week for two hours from 10 to 12. That's someone who wants you to understand that you need him the same way you need water, the same way you need bread in order to be alive. And so Jesus wants to give you life and satisfaction, but there's no other way that he can offer that apart from himself because they're only found in him. And so when, when we see Jesus for who he truly is, the Holy One of God, and we believe him, we truly can't fathom turning to anyone else because he is life. Which, which leads to my, my final point, that, that these words of Jesus, they're hard, they're polarizing, but they are life. And so our narrative kind of gets to this, this pinnacle where many of the followers have left. And so Jesus turns to the 12 and, and, and asks them, are you guys going to leave too? And, and of course, Peter, speaking on, on the behalf of the, of the disciples, which he really gets this right here, he, he says the words that we, we've just read, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so in this response of Peter, we see three characteristics of all followers of Jesus. The first is that the follower of Jesus relies on the words of Jesus, okay? Right there, he says, you, are the you have the words of eternal life. That is where we go to find our meaning, our purpose, um, and, 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 and what we are to pursue in life, the words of Jesus. The second characteristic of a follower of Jesus is that they exalt Jesus as the Messiah. Peter says, you are the Holy One of God. And the third characteristic of all believers is that they believe and know Jesus. That's why, that's why Peter says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We, we, yes, we're to place our, our faith in Jesus, but we're also supposed to desire to know more and more about him. The belief and the knowledge of Jesus, that's a mark of every follower 
of Jesus. And, and in his response, it's almost as if, it's almost as if Peter has thought about his options, right? It's almost like when Jesus says, hey, are you guys going to leave too? And he gives this rhetorical answer. It's almost like he's thought, you know, what are my options? Will I deny that God exists? Well, I just say, we're, we're all just here by chance. Everything, nothing has a purpose. And he's like, well, that doesn't really offer much hope or life. What if, I, what if I said turn to those people who say that sin's not a problem, that the world is fine as it is? I don't know why everybody's making such a big deal about sin. When he looks around and, and sees how broken this world is and it's very clear to him that sin is indeed a problem that must be solved. Will, in, will he instead turn to those who say that humanity can just save themselves? If we just do enough good things that we can work our way up to God and save ourselves. When he's very aware that if his eternal destiny depends on him doing enough good things, there's really no hope or life. Will he instead turn to, to earthly pleasures, temporal things like money or degrees or sex? And try to find meaning and satisfaction in those things when he knows they're just like bread and water that, yes, provide satisfaction for some time, but can't provide any enduring hope or life. And so that's what he has to answer in the same way that I hope we all do. With a resounding no. Because he understands that all of those other options fail. That only Jesus is able to offer words of life. And he can only find that within him. That's why here at, at Aletheia Church, we often sing this song that, that says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Right? And that's based off this like, very famous parable in Mark 7, 24 through 27, where Jesus depicts two people. Right? There's this wise man and basically this fool. The wise man builds his house on a rock. Right? And wind comes, storm come, and the water uh, hits the house, but, but it doesn't go anywhere because it, it's planted on the rock, right? And then he depicts this fool who builds their house on sand, right? And the same thing, water, rain, storms come, and guess what happens to the house? It, it tumbles, right? And look at what distinguishes the fool from the wise man in this story. He says in verse 24, Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And in, in, rever in, in contrast, in verse 26, he depicts what makes the other person foolish. He says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And he ends up saying, that against that house came all the winds and it fell and great was the fall of it. What is clear here, church, is that only Jesus can satisfy our penalty for sin. Only Jesus can satisfy the hunger and thirst in our hearts. Only he is the source of eternal and spiritual life. Only he can give you life because he has the power over sin and death. Now that the crowds are gone, now that the, the influence is gone for these 12, or for, for Peter, it's, it's not uh, appealing anymore just for the crowds. He still says it, it's so worth walking the narrow road. 
the narrow road. There's not a lot of people on it. Why is it worth traveling for Peter? Why is it worth traveling for us? It's because Jesus is there. That's it. If you're following after Jesus for any other reason, you too will, 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 you will desert him when confronted with his hard words and reality of the gospel. When the miracles stop, when your health fails, when your friends let you down, if those are the reasons you're following Jesus, you will want to turn away. Follow Jesus for who he is because that will never change. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And once we experience him, there's just nowhere else we can turn. Much like me at three o'clock in the morning, there's just no other, there's no other option. There's no other place we can go to find life outside of him. And I want you to think to yourself, is that my reality? It doesn't matter who turns away. Is, is Jesus that valuable to you? So valuable that the prospect of leaving him is, is laughable. That you would ask the same question, where else can I go to salvation? Yes, these words are hard. Yes, this life as a Christian is hard. But where else am I to turn to? That's why this question is not just a question that I want you guys to think about here while you're in church today, but the question of to whom shall I go is one that as a Christian we must ask ourselves on a daily basis. And I pray that your response is to Jesus and, and no one else. And now I wish the story, I wish the story would end here, but there's a, a few more verses. And right after Peter makes this great declaration, Jesus kind of gives him a little bit of pushback almost pointing to the fact that Peter probably got a little bit big-headed, you know, thinking like, oh, you know, like all those people left, I'm not leaving anywhere, Jesus. I'm not, I'm not like them. I'm, I'm so much better. I'm, I'm staying. And so Jesus re- responds to them and tells them, didn't I chose you, the 12, right? And so he's pointing to his, his sovereignty. And, and not just he chose the 12, he, he knows that one of them is the devil and will actually betray him, Right? In other words, he wants Peter to not get arrogant or big-headed just because he made the right statement of faith. He's calling Peter to humility. His answer was, was correct, but Jesus doesn't want him to be arrogant. In fact, after if we take into account everything that he has just told him, he's like, yes, Peter, the fact that you can make that statement is because the Spirit has given you life. It's because the Father has drawn you. This realization should actually make you just Worship God, not be judgmental and arrogant towards others. And it reminds me of the the story in in John 18 uh, about the the Pharisee and the tax collector praying, right? If you you think this is the only time that Jesus is calling people to be humble, no, it's all over the Bible. Um, And and he talks about uh, a Pharisee praying and a tax collector praying. And and look at what he says in verses 11 uh, onward in John 18. He says, the the tax collector, sorry, the Pharisee is standing by himself and prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But instead, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so if you're a Christian here this morning and you heard this whole sermon and you're like, I'm on the same page with Peter. I, there's no way I could turn away from Jesus. I am aware of this. And you've been listening to this whole sermon thinking, this would be a great sermon for this other person that I know doesn't really believe Jesus that way or somebody else who walked away and just like with contempt and arrogance, like I'm not like them. I would never leave Jesus. I, that's, that's something they would do. They're, they're, they're not as Christian as I am. This is a call for you to repent, a call to you, for you to instead focus and praise God for the work that he has done in your life and pray full of hope for those in your life that maybe have turned away from him. Humble yourself and praise him and pray for those who need a miracle. That's, that's our call. That's what, we're, that's what we're to do. If you're here this morning and, 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 and the words of Jesus give you life, that's awesome. I pray that that can lead you to share this same gospel reality with others. And so as I wrap up, I'm just gonna leave you guys with, with two charges. One for believers. The other is for if you're here and you're like, I'm, not, I'm just not a follower of Jesus. What, what, what does this all mean for me? So if you're a believer, this is, this is a charge for you. If you respond like Peter, you, you know, no, there's nowhere else you can turn to. In a little bit, we're going to get to sing together and praise him. Praise your heart out. We're going to get to celebrate baptisms. We're going to get to participate in communion together. This is your time to worship God for the work he has done in your life. And in the same way, if you're a believer and you found yourself much like Peter, a little bit arrogant this morning, confess your sin, trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross as we take communion. This is, this is the perfect time to do that. And my, char- my second charge is for, for those who are here this morning and maybe say, I, I, I'm just not a follower of Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't relate with the words of Peter. I'll tell you, these words are hard. They're, they're tough even for us as Christians. And Jesus is calling you to surrender and follow him. He wants to give you life, but he can't offer you that apart from himself. If that is something that you are interested in, that's something that you're like, I just don't know what that means or what that entails. I would love to talk to you after church. The pastors here would love to talk to you after church. If you came with someone that you trust more and would like to talk to them, I'm sure the people who are being baptized this morning would love to share what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. Don't leave here today without talking to someone if that is something you're interested in.